What we saw with Satoshi was this fundamental innovation that's this giant leap forward that means that you don't need middlemen. In 2016, a very impressive, intelligent British man named Nicholas Lyons visited me in my downtown Manhattan office and exclaimed, all information is valuable. The truth is priceless. Digital rights are human rights. Nicholas then proceeded to introduce me to the world of cryptocurrency. Nicholas Lyons asked me, do we want to live in an open world or a closed world? He explained, today we live online and we have no control over our digital lives. As we merge with spatial internet metaverse and artificial intelligence, we have one last chance to decide what our future will look like. But first, we must answer three critical questions. He said, should your digital identity be owned by the government or the technocracy? What rights do we want and need? How does humanity get there? Do I believe that Bitcoin is going to replace the dollar? No. Do I think it's a massive innovation that is going to change humanity? Yes. Nicholas Lyons is lead advisor to Veris.io and the founder of Archetype, a leading developer of applications built on the Veris protocol. Nicholas has participated in over $92 billion in the public and private equity capital markets during his career in finance. He was co-founder of Crescent Technology and Ad Astra Bayesian Machine Learning Systematic Hedge Fund, which was ultimately acquired by Aspect Capital. Nicholas, thank you for painting a compelling picture of times ahead on some future day. Nicholas, good afternoon. It's great to see you today. That's a beautiful view behind. Where where are we? Where are you today? We're in 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 darkest, deepest, darkest uh, south of France, with a very moody, with a very moody backdrop today. But uh, it's always a pleasure to see you in New York, and uh, I miss uh, I miss New York. It's one of the great cities. It's good to see you. So, just to uh, open up, I, I was giving some thought as to some of our past discussions. And it seems to me like luxury brands, think in terms of maybe Gucci or Vuitton, they're missing a big opportunity as it relates to capitalizing with regards to cryptocurrency specifically. And I'm curious, um, in your opinion, if that statement is valid and how you would suggest a luxury brand consider capitalizing on cryptocurrency in the future straight in with a good uh, a good question well i think that i think what we have to understand is that brands and the future of brands is about acquiring a new territory shall we say and that new territory is best characterized as being community so i think that where brands at the moment have fans that fan group is going to become more and more of a community and that community will have benefits and so if we were to look at what you know we consider to be the the big leap forward is the move from network effects to network economies and so i think you can think of luxury brands as an economy and that that economy is going to expand beyond 
bags and apparel. And as we've seen, it moves into fragrances and other different economic arenas. This is new land to be conquered by those brands and that those brands will need to expand into this virtual arena. And so we see economies growing through productivity leaps and then the benefits of digitization, which happened with you know the last version of the web. The next version of the web is about enfranchising people who are your customers and into becoming your community and about uniting the group of people that are your employees, who are your advocates you know, professionally, your brand consumers who may not necessarily be yet members of the community, but growing them into being community members and mutualizing the brand value with them. So it's about sharing the brand value amongst the constituency that is what we call the six critical stakeholders. So that would be your supply chain, your uh, regulators, your uh, brand consumers, your brand owners, the equity holders, and, uh, and the wider community. So the opportunity for luxury brands is to build network economies in the digital space beyond the website. And that may take uh, place in the metaverse, which we could just refer to as the immersive internet, or it could take place inside of a digital wallet that stores entry cards uh, that gives benefits like, you know, in the UK, not a luxury brand, but, you know, a good brand example is Orange Wednesdays, I think it was, where they gave people who were loyal to Orange as a brand of telephony would get to go to the cinema cheaply. All of those things will be gated through the use of digital assets. That is to say, what is currently referred to as NFT may just be a proof or an attestation that you are a member of that luxury community, which entitles you to go to New York Fashion Week if you've got a balance of a million Vuittons. It may enable you to go to a, a, you know, a show uh, or, 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 or a movie, or it may be that the brand has affiliation with a musical star or a, um, a stadium, for example, and so you get some preferential benefit. So it's the mutualization of real estate, new real estate in the digital arena, which is most interesting to all brands. doesn't matter if they're luxury. It's all brands have this opportunity. So you hit on a lot of topics there, but I guess my question to you is what would be the difference for a brand in the way it behaves today with web two and physical brick and mortar, right? Like one concept you spoke about is if you have a certain amount of Vuittons, you can then access a unique experience. But it seems like a brand like LV can do that today. And then second, the question is, when you refer to Vuittons, is that a new form of cryptocurrency that you're suggesting the brands issue? And that's where the new monetary value is derived for the, comes from for the brand? Or is this a stakeholder economy where different elements. You, you mentioned, for example, supply chain, where different key stakeholders are then participating in the growth of a company. And is that for, feasible for some of these big brands like a Gucci? Look, I think you have to look at it and it, it, it depends on the business. Like every business, 
you know, could use any amount of tools. Does every business use the equity markets, the debt markets, the, you know, mezzanine financing markets, you know, the, the tools that are coming that are going to be the evolution of the web are about removing unnecessary frictions that when you're coming in, when you're talking about brands. So what you want to remove is the friction of processing of payments, for example. So if you are in a high volume retail environment, let's say you're Starbucks, if you were able to use a cryptocurrency that was settling, and it could just be USDC, it doesn't have to be Starbucks. But if you were using USDC to settle, you could settle without the 3% or whatever their interchange fee was for Visa. So that would be a payments use case. At the same time, Starbucks do you know, these music promotions, and therefore you could have a digital good, like what would otherwise be referred to as an NFT, that would entitle you to uh, membership benefits. So the way that I would look at it is to say that whether you call it cryptocurrencies or whether you call it digital assets, those digital assets are about more efficient ways of doing things that were done in the past. So payments was done in the past. It just has high cost and it has high latency because, you know, if you're, I don't know if you do business, well, you do do business with large Fortune 500 companies, they have a very long payment cycle. You might wait yeah. 90 days, you might wait longer for that. Well, 90 right. days of, of payments uh, delay is extremely painful for small businesses and medium-sized businesses. And if they gave you the choice of saying getting paid in dollars or getting paid in, let's call it Starbucks or Vuitton's, if you were in the supply chain and you knew that they were good for the money and they offered you payment in Starbucks today in five minutes versus waiting 90 days for payment, as long as you had liquidity in Starbucks and they were backed by something, they were reserved, right? Like dollars are reserved by deposits in the bank. They are 10% reserved, you know, broadly speaking, then you should be happy to receive that if it is a payment mechanism solution you're looking for. So there are multiple different solutions that brands can avail themselves of. And some of them are just cheaper, better, more secure ways of doing things they've done in the past. And some of them are novel uh, ideas. And those novel ideas are characterized by being direct to consumer, essentially. So what existed for brands before is, yes, you've got a loyalty scheme and it's intermediated by a software provider that runs your loyalty scheme. Yes, you have a credit card or a debit card, but it is interfaced by Visa MasterCard and you get an interchange fee, you know, or depending on what your relationship is, right? And so those are all different methods or all different things that digital assets can and will do. The big difference is you don't need the middleman. The whole point about the blockchain is the removal of rent seekers. Well, what is the, who is the rent seeker between Vuitton and its customer? It is Google who sits in between when they want to talk to them and advertise to them. It's Visa when they want to accept payments. It's right. the banking system when they want to move money. And they don't have a way to market digital assets at the moment unless they go through middlemen like Rarible or you know, uh, OpenSea, et cetera. The whole idea is that the customer should be able to connect with the brand directly and exchange value with them directly 
and the brand wants to exchange something of value in exchange for something of value. And the thing of value that they can get directly from the user in the next version of the web is their identity data in a secure private way. At the moment, they get their identity data via cohort data via Google or the Facebook or, or Meta or whoever else. The big leap for a brand and for a CMO and a CTO and you know probably the CEO and the CFO is they can have a direct relationship with their customers. They can directly incentivize the behavior of those customers and indirectly incentivizing the behavior of their customers, they create a real relationship. And that real relationship can be optimized because the value that they have earned can be traded with another form of value with another peer-to-peer -peer user of a network so that you're not locked into a walled garden of Vuittons. You are being allowed to participate in the open internet. So long answer to your question is, Every single traditional financial product that is used by a corporation will migrate to the digital asset space. All of the security will move from a mediated or intermediated world to a direct world. And the value savings in the disintermediated middleman is somewhere between seven, I would assume, and 14% of the operating costs when you're talking about legal compliance, advertising, et cetera. Average CPG company, 24% of budgeted cost is advertising. If you think that you can bridge that gap, every brand is gonna say, I would love to see you know, 24% or, or anything from 3% of its payments processing savings to 24% if it includes advertising, fall to the bottom line. It makes a major impact on my, on my bottom line. So my CEO should care, my CTO should care, my CMO should care. And if you think about it as currency, you should think about it like a pseudo currency. Forget crypto. These are pseudo currencies because they're centralized. So they're much more like air miles or coupons or loyalty points that have superpowers, right? So you can change the price of a flight in air miles if you want to incentivize people to fly to Rome tomorrow. You can make it, sure. oh, wow, you know, you can fly to Rome for 100 air miles, right? This is the pricing power brands will get directly when they embrace value from the brand directly and enfranchise community to join in that value. So recapturing that effectively, that profit margin is huge. But when you think about these, what you refer to as pseudo currencies, can those pseudo currencies create a new valuation for a publicly traded company too? So on the one side, you're, you're, it's money's that's spent already, right? And you're bringing that back into your profit margin. But on the other side, can we create new value for these companies, whether it's a luxury brand or not? Like, like for example, maybe we, we focus in on your concept of Starbucks, right? Starbucks is interesting because they have you know, arguably one of the strongest consumer facing loyalty programs on the planet. And with Starbucks Odyssey, they're starting to move into leveraging the blockchain and web three. So is that feasible? The idea of, of creating exponential growth through a pseudo currency. So I would say that, you know, the intangible asset that, that you can monetize is brand itself. So brand is 
an intangible asset, but the name, when I say Starbucks, it conjures coffee. So what they really have is a coffee currency. And if we are being, you know, very clear about what happens, you know, if we make it as simple as possible, somebody comes to uh, Starbucks and they take $50 out of their wallet and they buy a Starbucks loyalty card with $50 of coffee on it. Now that $50 of coffee is actually $60 of coffee, let's say for the sake of argument, because you get a discounted price when you buy with your loyalty or your, your, your card. So you are right. buying, you're, what, what you're really doing is you're depositing cash, $50, into a bank of coffee where you have coffee credit, essentially, in an amount that is greater than the $50 that you deposited, right? That's the deal. Yes, you're buying forward discounted coffee, yes? Now, that isn't what they're doing with Odyssey. That isn't what they're doing with Starbucks, but that's what you're doing with a regular card. When you walk up and you put money on a gift card, you're basically funding a bank. And so there is a bank of coffee that resides within Starbucks. And that bank of coffee actually is very large. I believe, I haven't checked the numbers recently, but I believe that it was at some point up to $2 billion were sitting on the balance sheet as what would be known as deferred revenue liabilities. They are, they are revenue that has yet to be accounted for because you haven't yet redeemed the coffee. And so this has a very specific tax treatment in the US and around the world. So yes, those things do exist at the moment. Making those more efficient and making them a true asset that resides with you as a user in your digital wallet is going to become the norm. And your loyalty will be rewarded both in incentive in terms of price, but also liquidity in terms of people that would like to trade or exchange those points with you, much in the same way that people buy points for Amex or buy points for uh, other loyalty schemes, etc. You can top up air miles, etc. So I think you have to you know, look at brands and say they do have a conception of this. They do have a conception of this in payments. They do have a conception of this in pseudo currencies. They do have a conception of this in couponing. If you look at like Bed Bath & Beyond for a good example of a permanent couponing, 20% off type of thing. So there are all, all of these ways that value is exchanged with consumers. What the blockchain enables is the digitization, well, more than the digitization, the valorization of the relationship between the customer and the brand, and then contextualizes that relationship, the individual with the brand, with a collective that it effectively gives a sense of identity. Now, I'm not sure you're gaining identity from being Starbucks, but people do gain identity from you know wearing Adidas or wearing Nike or wearing Supreme or Vuitton, etc., because those are you know human signaling you know modes and methods. So. To your question, will it add value to the traded value of a brand? I can see through you know, removal of costs, from provisioning of a new digital balance sheet, from the ability to make brands, you know, acquisition of customers more direct and more sticky, that basically you will add net margin from a valuation perspective, but you will add new real estate. So it's sort of like saying, well, did adding a website to Vuitton make it more valuable? Well, yes, because the surface area that the brand can 
people that can experience the brand widens. And the same with the metaverse, with if you add an immersive space to your website that people can explore you in 3D, whether it's through VR or AR or XR or just a gamification of an environment, a digital twin, that's new real estate. And in that new real estate, there will be new goods sold that will expand revenue and cost savings that through the removal of payments, compliance, information, friction. That's where the value is delivered. So it's interesting in looking at Vuitton because this summer they dipped their toe in the Web3 space with the launch of the uh, Via treasure trunks. They sold on average for $41,000. And in this case, it's my understanding that they were soul bound. You could not, if you were an owner, trade them on secondary markets. But what they did, which is interesting, is only owners of the treasure trunks would have access to future digital assets like these immersive drops and the digital keys that unlocked additional NFTs that were tradable, that are tradable on the secondary market, like the, the Speedy that Pharrell built, and then also give you access to the physical goods. So does that concept that they're launching a soul-bound digital asset starting with the the via tr- the Louis Vuitton via treasure trunk for $41,000 create additional financial value for for LVMH and for that stock price yeah. and then the interaction of unlocking with a tradability component NFTs effectively that lead to real world you know to physical assets how do you see that 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 play Everything that people are doing at the moment is very experimental and it is limited, in my opinion, by the comprehension of the people deploying the technology and, you know, the risk, uh, upside risk versus the downside risk. Obviously, the EVM and the Ethereum related environment is subject to uh, a large amount of hacking and bad code and losses that no big brand wants to be associated with. So you want to be very careful dipping your toe into this, uh, these waters. And clearly, you know, this treasure trunk at 41,000 is something new. And so it's expanded its revenue. Is it scalable? Could it get, you know, deeper and bigger and wider? Yeah, absolutely. Of course it can. The issue of NFTs or that type of offering as uh, in America and around the world is limited by the knowledge uh, also around its regulatory status. So if we look at what happened recently with Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher and this other one, Impact Theory in, in LA, they were uh, censured. Uh, Impact Theory, I think, got a $6.1 million fine. Kutcher and Kunis, I think, uh, I, I'm not sure what's happening with that. I think it's progressing. And it's really, you know, the SEC saying, you know, if it walks like a duck, cracks like a duck, you know, it likely is a duck. And so it doesn't matter what you're selling, you could fall foul of securities rules, and you could create issues with your customers. Now, brands are very wary of doing that type of thing. And, you know, causing themselves more of a, you know, uh, more damage than, than good. I think that regulatory clarity will assist that. And furthermore, you know, we also saw censure was delivered to those who were influencers like Kim Kardashian and Floyd Mayweather, who were censured a year or two ago for pumping, essentially. So I think we're going to move away. And I think this is really the SEC and the 
the wider world coming to the realization that Bitcoin is fundamentally an innovation that stores value and is, let's call it, digitally native currency. So it's an internet currency or it's an internet reserve in the same way that we can say the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. Bitcoin, you could say, is the reserve currency of the digital world. Ethereum is a global computer, not a very good global computer because it's you know slower, more expensive, and less secure than the existing compute platforms that we use. But it's notionally decentralized, which is supposed to be something that's of interest. I don't think the decentralization piece of the equation for someone like Vuitton or Starbucks is at all relevant because they're not decentralized, they're centralized. So this becomes much more about commerce than it is about decentralization. The question is, how do you bring your community into that commercial relationship without giving them a tax headache, a regulatory headache, and, uh, and a liability? It's interesting that you're saying that because going back to the, the stoner cats example, what the SEC said is they essentially charged them for trading unregistered securities. The creators in their primary push generated about 8 million in revenue and an additional 20 million in revenue off of secondary sales. So a lot of money was created through the sale of the stoner cats NFT collection and I think as, as recent as today, major marketplaces, including OpenSea, have said that they're no longer going to trade stoner cats. So this concept of trust between your consumer, the end user, and the brand is critical. Do you think that the stoner cats community might have some sort of a lawsuit again, that they can pose against the creators in that now the um, NFT digital asset isn't capable of being traded on platforms like OpenSea? Well, I mean, this is, uh, this is where you learn your lesson about decentralization, right? Because if they would have launched this on a DEX, if this would have all been done decentralized and wasn't done with a profit motive, but with a true community, then you wouldn't have the censorship that is, you know, because you can identify the, you know, the leaders, you can identify the, the part of, you know, what they were trying to do. And, you know, I do believe that, you know, the SEC is acting in such a way that they're trying to bring, you know, they're trying to regulate through enforcement. I know this is unpopular with other members of the commission, like uh, Pierce or Hester Pierce, etc. But the fact of the matter is most of the issuance that was done, you know, in the ICO boom days of 2017, and the DeFi summer and the NFT craze were really, you know, money-making schemes of, and likely all, uh, or you know, the vast majority of them were unregistered securities with you know smart, motivated, profit-oriented um, leaders at, at the helm. Uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer to give advice, so I don't know what you know the holders will do relative to the promoters, but I think that the SEC is trying to make the point that if you get people to buy something in hopes of it going up and it is you know in reliance on your team and you know you are not yet produced this and everything else that goes with the howie test it doesn't matter whether it's oranges or stoner cats you owe a fiduciary duty and by the way that extends even further because let's leave aside nfts stoner cats impact theory etc 
It also applies if you come to understand that this is about, you know, the financialization of the internet and an internet that is owned by the users. If you have centralized counterparties providing services, those services will fall under the purview of the regulators. And that includes all the trading services. So to your point about being deplatformed from OpenSea, I mean, that's the whole point of decentralization. You're not supposed to be able to be deplatformed from the market. You're not supposed to be deplatformed from OpenSea or Rarible or Coinbase. But if you get deplatformed, it effectively says that, you know, this is not decentralized. So, you know, these things are proving the problem. Now, even if you go back to the protocol and you look at what's going on in Ethereum, Ethereum has got regulatory problems with the fact that it institutionalizes front running. It institutionalizes bribery, you know, tipping or bribing to get your transaction processed first by paying a larger fee is not uh, allowed in regulated markets. If you were going to Goldman Sachs and saying, I'd like to buy this stock and I'm going to give you a higher fee to buy it now so that Joe Blow doesn't get to buy it now, that would be a problem, right? The only benefit you can get is by being faster, right? That's why high-frequency guys get closer to the exchange historically, right? You want to be closer for latency to execute your transaction. All of those rules, as the regulator comes to understand them, are going to come to bite, including MEV, which is not maximal extractable value. It's minor extractive value. And it's not miners anymore because it's stakers. And stakers have to have money, which is privilege, Essentially, you've got to have you know, money to stake. And those stakers get to be you know, those that order the transactions, and they can front run you by slipping in an insider trade, right? Because that's what it is. If you're the block uh, proposer and you're ordering it and you get to put your trade in ahead, front run your, all of the orders in the block, that's called insider trading. So as we mature, the regulator is going to mature, and it's going to affect a lot of the pieces of the of the organizational jigsaw puzzle. Now, Vitalik is talking about, you know, how do we spread MEV and create an MEV pool? And no, that, that's just a design error, right? If you're trying to remove costs from a system, it needs to be cheaper, faster, and more secure to replace web two. Having systems that create insider trading, front running, back running, sandwich attacks, time bandit attacks, you know, hacks and loss of capital is nothing of interest to the world's most valuable brands, they do not want to be associated with Ponzi-nomics. That's the problem. So have we seen any cases yet? Have Has anybody been kind of caught doing what you're describing right now? Because I know the SEC like continues to go after the centralized entities, right, Nicholas? I mean, for example, even this week, I know David Hirsch, who, who's like, in, you know, in for, the enforcement arm of the SEC came out publicly and he said, Look, beyond Coinbase, beyond Binance, we're coming after other marketplaces, cryptocurrency marketplaces. But how could they control what you're talking about in, in a decentralized space? Well, that's the point. If you're truly decentralized, you are immune because you are censorship resistant. You cannot be told what to do because you're not reliant on the centralized infrastructure. So you have this de facto exposure, which is that most of the DeFi applications are not truly decentralized. And they have this process saying, oh, we're going to be decentralized, or we're going to be doing this, that, and the other. But very rarely do they have 
incredibly neutral origins. Very fair, very rarely do they have fair launches. Very rarely is there really a you know governance that is fully decentralized and uh, or you know not incent not collectively incentivized through the economics. And that is going to be the you know the limit. You know the law protects free speech. So if you create free open source software, and if you are self-sovereign, that is to say that if you are not entrusting your valuable digital assets or data to a third party, then you are self-custodial, then you have the protections of Fourth Amendment privacy. You have to do it properly if you want to be censorship resistant. If not, you will be regulated exactly the way that your national regulator sees fit. Exactly the way. So really what we're talking about is Veris. We're talking about your your ecosystem, which has a lot of features that I think progress beyond where we've been in this, you know, blockchain and crypto space. And to a certain extent, I was giving it some thought and, and I wrote notes on it. I, I kind of see Veris as this, like, almost like we have these tech stacks in web two. And to a certain extent, Veris is like an independent crypto stack, right? It, it kind of right. progresses and gives so many features. And it, I, I think in fact, it might even help us reach a certain level of mass user adoption and comfort in the decentralized world because your ecosystem, this this independent it's, crypto it's not mine. stack. It's our ecosystem. You're as much a part of it as, our, as I am. Our independent crypto stack seems like it's easier for onboarding too. So maybe take a minute and describe this independent crypto stack, as I'm calling it, um, and then maybe segue also as to like why it's predictably easier for users that have never been in the crypto space to come on board with Verus. Let's contextualize it because there's so much, you know, there's such a range of comprehension that exists in the space. And there's so many people that have their own, you know, worldview. So my worldview is that we are moving to a more and more coherent world that, you know, most people talk about tech, right? And I, and I often say this is, I believe we're more talking about IT. People drop the references to IT. Do you remember when of course. technology was called IT? And I don't know if you remember what the I stands for. Do you remember what the I stands for in Information. IT? Information, exactly. We dropped the information part and we just referred to tech, right? But what the blockchain and the future internet is about is about information. Information, and, and I always use this mantra that, that I coined, was that all information is valuable. In any relationship, any information that is offered is valuable. You know, the way someone behaves, the way someone speaks, the way someone eats, the way every shred of information that exists in the physical world is valuable when observed and enables you to make a decision. You know, I like this person, I don't like this person, et cetera, et cetera. I, I like this, I like that. You, you, every, every part of your life is based on an information input that is sensed through your five senses. You either see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, or touch it, yes? That's the physical world. And the digital world is about to go through and has been going through that same, you know, sensi you know sensitization, right? That same 
way that you're moving, the physical world and the digital world are merging. And they're merging, yes, through technology, but it's really information, right? You need information to get a mortgage. You need information to buy a car. You need information to get to the airport. You need information to get to your destination. You know, just imagine trying to get to a destination these days with a map rather than your GPS, right? It's all information technology. And that information is currently owned by the group of people that made the technology that gave you access to that information. The internet information that you navigate to through Google is owned by Google and they've been logging that information about you. They know everything about you. They know everything about your cohort and they are correlating that data to predict your next step. That is your perception field. Your perception field is augmented, right, through the services you use in the information space. So the big innovation of the blockchain of Satoshi's Bitcoin is the removal of the necessity for the information space to be intermediated by a party that is the trusted party. It's the removal of trust, which is that terrible word that people are trustless, permissionless. You know, trustless sounds terrible, doesn't it? It's like, oh, it's trustless. That's like, oh, that doesn't sound good, right? What you should say, it's, it's trustful, right? But it's trustful yes. without the need to rely on someone else. Right. So right. you have these terrible words that confuse everyone. Oh, I'm not trustless. I don't want, you know, I don't want to be trustless. I want to trust this person. Right. So this whole thing is about coherence of information through the medium of technology, which is now part of your perception field because all of your information flows through to you from this little device or the computer. And so that space now needs to be owned in the same way you own your consciousness in your physical world. You need to own your digital consciousness and you're not going to allow for your identity. If someone says, Oh, I'm holding Mark Beckman's uh, uh, identity uh, just down the road, uh, uh, you know, on, on, on broad street or on, on wall street, you'd be like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why is my identity owned by you over there? That makes no sense. My consciousness needs to be owned by me in here in the same way. Your digital consciousness now needs to be self-sovereign, owned by you, controlled by you. You are the king of your castle. And all of your perceptions, your digital perceptions, can be owned and controlled using your identity. So identity becomes a key building block, but that identity can't be an Apple ID or a Google ID or a Samsung ID. It needs to be an ID that you own and control and that you allow access to, just like you do in the physical world. You allow people access to your, your physical space to meet with them, et cetera, et cetera. In the same way, you're going to mediate that. And that has value. So all information is valuable, but the truth is priceless. That's the critical point, is that people are liars, you know, sad as it may seem, and we don't want to say bad things about people, but most people have a tendency to economize with the truth. And so the problem that we have, and we saw this with polling, is that if people ask a loaded question, if they don't have privacy to provide information privately, they will often 
give you the answer that they think you want to hear, which is why the polling was off in 2016 and 2013 and all these things. Because if they say, do you want a Brexit? And, you know, someone thinks that you're going to judge them, they can say, no, 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 I'm a Remainer. Right. And then you get all of this perverse outcomes when people don't have privacy. So the primitives that you need, if you're going through coherence and all of these things are happening, you need identity, you need privacy, you need security. And then you want to find a way that if you own all of these things, why, when I trade them, do I need to go through a middleman? Why can't I trade Mark to Nick directly? And why do I need to go and pay 3% to Visa, you know, X percent to this one on that one and the other one? There's unnecessary. So you need an, a market maker, an automated market maker, but not an automated market maker that's trying to sell you on Ponzi-nomics, just an automated market maker that removes front running, removes back running, removes time bandit attacks, removes all of the stuff that the SEC is trying to to make sure people don't do, right? You know, you want to make sure that you get a fair exchange. This happens all the time. People go on holiday, they say, oh, I'm going to get some dollars when I go through the, you know, through Bureau de Change. And then they go, oh, there's no commission, but the spread is, you know, wide enough to drive a truck through, right? So they made all the money on the spread. They say, oh, no commission. Someone goes, look, I paid no commission, but you paid 120 for your, your, your euro dollar instead of 106. So you got absolutely skinned. Now, those behaviors are allowed, right? But it's not allowed if you're going to operate a marketplace. It's not allowed, and it shouldn't be allowed in the airport either. But uh, the fact of the matter is, this is the way the markets work. So you need to have a system that is built to remove the things that rip off customers. So that's why you need AMMs that are MEV free. And you need to be able to provide liquidity without having to put that liquidity into somebody else's control. That's what people talk about, custodial and non-custodial or self-hosted and you know all these other words that confuse everyone. But it's basically, I want to keep my money under my control and I want it to stake under my identity and I want to be able to not have to answer to a third party if I want to, to, to remove my liquidity. So you want liquidity pools, AMMs, and then you want the ability, just like when you create a company, you don't want a monolithic chain. You don't want one store of value. That isn't the way of the world. There is a multitude of value. In the same way, there's not one you know, diet drink, right? There's diet Coke, there's diet Sprite, there's, diet, there's all these different flavors, right? There's variety. There's not, you know, the idea that there's going to be one monolithic chain that's going to store all the world's value. And by the way, it's non-scalable. So it doesn't even, you know, this is a trilemma that exists for the EVM. It, it is not, the trilemma is not real in Verus, that's for sure. But the trilemma exists for any EVM because there is a problem between decentralization and scalability and security. So those are real issues there. Now, if you don't care about decentralization, it doesn't matter. But there are, there are costs. There are costs to doing that. So in our world, we believe that just like anyone can start a company, anyone should be able to launch a token or launch a public blockchain and have all the software that they need and all the primitives that they need, that's identity, security, exchange, peer-to-peer exchangeability, namespaces, vaults, all of that should be just like Apple has that all at the platform level and available for developers to interface with. The Verus protocol provides those primitives as RPC APIs 
that enable developers, just like, you know, when you talk about developer networks, Apple's got 35 million app developers, I think, when he last spoke. Like, that's how many are in that ecosystem. That's a giant number of people. And that's an amazing achievement. They built Apple's App Store, right? Because Apple gave them the primitives where they could just be creative. They didn't have to worry about smart contract security and audits. And No. Apple said, we'll look after the basics. You go and be creative and do your best work. That's what the next version of the internet needs. And that's where Verus is an internet protocol, not a threat to Bitcoin and the dollar hegemony. We're not trying to replace the dollar and we're not trying to be a global computer. We're trying to be an internet protocol that is owned directly by the people that participate and the brands that participate. So you could create a permission chain and access a user that is self-sovereign. So if I have endpoints where I've proven my identity, I'm an accredited investor, I'm a qualified institutional buyer, I am driving this car and I put my spend, you know, my privacy protected spending patterns that say that I am a target for Vuitton or a target for Walmart, doesn't matter. They can speak to me directly and offer me something of value in exchange for being able to speak to me. That's the next version of the web where we don't have to go through, you know, a subterfuge of advertising to then get, you know, an identity that then re re requires a CPC, you know, payment, right? Because that CPC payment is going to Google. That should be going to me. If I'm proving to you I get make $50,000 a year, then pay me and pay me in your, if you're Starbucks, in coffee currency. And if I don't want to drink your coffee, I could sell that token to someone who does want to buy your coffee. So it's just fine. So I, I know like the Veris protocol has some remarkable and innovative security features, which I'd like to get into with you. But I'm curious, um, before we do so, have any big entities that really require a higher level of security used the Veris protocol yet? Or is, is there any specific use case that you can share with our audience today? Yeah, so um, so we finished the, you know, the full protocol. So that's everything that was in the vision paper. So security. So the blockchain itself launched on the 21st of May 2018 has been up and running for you know five years or whatever it is now, five plus years now with no downtime. So that's been up and running since 2018. Identities, I think it was December 2019, we had identities at mainnet. And then we've just put DeFi and public blockchains as a service all went to main, mainnet in 21st of May this year. So the full vision is now complete. Congratulations. Thank you. It was well, thank, to, thanks to the community, the community effort. Uh, so no ICO, no developer rewards, you know, no VC money, just truly a bunch of people that said there has to be a better way for the internet to work, who had truly credibility in case of it, truly decentralized, just like Satoshi did with Bitcoin, same ethos completely that says the only way we can be protected under the law is if we do it this way and we don't take anything from it. We just build it and support it and make it accessible to everybody. So uh, that's part one of the delivery. Uh, part two of what we were delivering is a fully decentralized root cryptographic 
self-custodial bridge between Ethereum, because we, we appreciate Ethereum uh, for, for what, they, what they built, and the ecosystem exists of developers exists on Ethereum. So you need to be able to allow ERC-20s, 721s, 1155s, and, and e Ethereum contracts to come backwards and forwards to the Verus protocol. And that is going to mean that in the next couple of days. So that's another big thing because all the other bridges are buggy and dangerous, like we saw what happened with Wormhole and Ronin and, and all the others, which are multi-sig, they are custodial and dangerous. So this is self-custodial and fully decentralized. So that gives access to all of the tokens that exist on Ethereum will be available on Verus. Okay, so that's the end of the beginning and the beginning of you know these tools being available to everybody to the question therefore of who's using us the the uh, we won an award uh, from fidelity uh, last year in march called the fidelity advanced center for technology innovation award and we have done some work with fidelity but i can't tell you too much about that because it's it's under nda but I, I can tell you about the work that we're doing with the Energy Supply Board of Ireland, which is the national grid operator that generates energy for the Irish nation. It's owned by the government. It's a government entity. And their partnership that was created with VMware, which, as you know, is 97% of enterprise cloud solutions. And uh, originally, it was Dell Computers as well was, was a part of that work that we were doing with them. And with them, it was showing them how you could utilize the various protocol to certify the outputs from a wind generator and enable for that wind generator proof, let's call it a guarantee of origin, for that proof that that megawatt hour was generated from a, a wind resource in Ireland and that the data center that VMware and the, the compute partner was uh, operating, was consuming energy to operate its data center, and it needed to certify that it was consuming, at, let's say for the sake of argument, a megawatt hour of power to power the data center, and that between those two, you can now prove that data center A is using power, green energy, from wind generator A, and that it can exchange a payment for a guarantee of origin that they, the data center operator, can now provide that guarantee to its tenants, which are predominantly telcos, and that that telco can now present in its ESG report to its investors, whoever that might be, typical Vanguard or BlackRock or whoever else is the institutional investor who requires ESG compliance, they can now provide them with a guarantee of origin that is effectively provable on chain that this telephony company used this VMware-based data center to provide services to this end customer via the Irish grid that came from this uh, megawatt of our generator. That's a real-time energy token. We are able to do that, and we uh, provided that POC to ESB in Ireland, and we continue to work with them. So this is not about stoner cats. This is about if you want to be sure that your telephony company is using green energy in Ireland to deliver you know, your services on the internet in order that we don't 
have problems with our climate, that can be done and provable and, you know, very efficiently and without or any of the greenwashing. You know, that's, it's, it's, it's designed to fight greenwashing because people are cheating the systems. You cannot cheat these systems. Because it's fully transparent. And it's on-chain, and it's not maintained by ESP or that wind generator. The wind generator independently generates the token that says, I created a megawatt hour of hour from wind blowing on the West Coast, and I sold it to this data center for this hours operating for Deutsche Telekom or T-Mobile, and I paid this amount of money, and I've got this guarantee of origin that can track the whole provenance of the process. This is the dream of blockchain, by the way. So it's kind of interesting to to touch on the climate change issue, um, just to go there for a second. How? What kind of an impact can that have in smaller markets, in perhaps underdeveloped regions of the world where they don't have these massive grids? Can companies then go into remote areas of Africa, of India, perhaps the Middle East, and set up some sort of renewable energy system that would allow for individuals to um, take advantage of the business model you just discussed, whereas maybe perhaps they couldn't before because there's no existing grid. So what I just described to you was an example of refining a frictional process that unlocks value for investors, grid operators, data center operators, and wind generators. It doesn't talk about where the business opportunity really is. So that's, that's a business opportunity through savings and, and, and efficiency. The opportunity is, of course, that the wind blows at night when there's not very much demand. So one of the big problems with environmental uh, solutions is you know, the sun doesn't shine at night, but the wind blows at night and there's often more power available than there is demand because factories don't work at night in Western Europe. They may work all night in China, but they don't elsewhere in the world. And so you have these needs, you have excess power that not, is not being used and you have pricing inefficiencies. So what the technology does is it unlocks value. Why? Because when you have a protocol, and this is another something exciting about Verus, when you have a protocol that can be mined on a regular mobile phone, an Android mobile phone, any 64-bit processor, or even a Rock Pi, or computers that sit in a data center, what you now have is a use for what would be otherwise wasted energy. So to your question, what would you do if you had excess energy in Africa or wind in Africa? So it doesn't change the necessarily the business model for renewables. The use of that uh, technology means that the wasted energy can be turned into network security. That's what you're really doing. You're transforming wasted energy into security. And so if you can use what would otherwise be what's known as curtailed energy to create security for a worldwide network, you would then have a, an abundant green energy supply and having a way to offtake what would otherwise be just wasted and, and burned or curtailed and turning that into something productive means that you can raise the marginal value of renewables 
because you can't store renewable energy, the battery technology does not exist to store it. That's what Elon's been working on, right? His, his Tesla Powerwall. His problem is you can't store it for very long, right? And, and it doesn't store well. Now, if you think about that, when talking about you know, massive installations of solar and everything else, until battery technology gets better, all that energy is just wasted. Now, think about taking that wasted energy to provide security to a global network. That is the real exciting thing, is that excess wasted energy is turned into computational power. Have you heard, I haven't heard of any companies or um, any governmental entities articulate the vision that you just shared. Are you, are you aware of anybody that's looking to achieve that? Yeah, I don't want to be disingenuous. Bitcoiners talk about this, right? So this has been the big fight. And this is where, as the Bitcoin ETF nears its approval, you see the pivoting of positioning around Bitcoin's you know, brown and, and bad to green and good, right? Now, Bitcoin is really a, a little, you know, I don't want to go against the maximalists, but Bitcoin is really burning energy in the same way in order to provide security to a store value coin, right? But the problem is that it's not a very efficient miner. So you have to have, you, you have ASICs, you have, you know, custom designed silicon that only performs that service. The difference between Verus and Bitcoin is that Verus is optimized for the CPU, so it can use the installed characteristics of the CPU in the existing machinery that's out there in everybody's computer and in everybody's mobile phone to mine the protocol, and it's 50% proof of work using the CPU and 50% proof of stake. So once you've won block on the proof of work, you can then stake it using your ID and make more money on that. So it's got a way to bootstrap the participation of a decentralized distributed network. That's why you want to have your processing at the lowest level of compute so everybody can participate. So it's fair. So you don't have an unfair internet where you need 32 ETH to stake and it all goes into Lido and it's all centralized, right? That doesn't make sense. You want it distributed. So because systems should not only be decentralized, but distributed and decentralized. So having this type of technology enables mass participation and mass utilization of underutilized equipment. And this is a big issue for, you know, VMware will tell you, you know, they want to optimize load, ba ba you know, load ba basing across their network and the internet wants high availability. So, you know, having this is the right way to do it. So Bitcoin has been the enemy of ESG because you're burning energy essentially just to provide security to a new form of money and it's not very efficient and they'll tell you how inefficient fiat is and that's fine but the truth is if you can do it better with a 64-bit processor or just a an android mobile phone and i'll send you some pictures you can put on the thing with loads of people that have got like 10 crack screen android mobiles and they're just mining away and and they're making a little bit of money and the other thing with verus is that you could merge mine up to 22 chains so the same hash can provide security to 22 chains so that you've got an economy so it's like you're without it you can effectively choose 22 of your favorite chains or you could just optimize and mine 22 more most profitable chains for example and anyone can do that as long as they've got uh, you know an android mobile phone it sounds like the Verus protocol then is really an evolution of sorts coming off of what you've witnessed with starting with bitcoin 
but then expanding, taking bits and pieces of things that were concepts that need to be improved and bringing it all together, bringing us, I guess, into the forefront of Web3 in a way. Right. So, you know, this is exactly the point that I make to people and say, first of all, it's a community effort and the lead developer is the founder of .NET. So you're talking about someone who's already built systems that are used all over the world. And he was the founder and original ideator of .NET for Microsoft and then was the technical fellow in advertising and their big data who's and that? AI business. That's Mike Tatongi, who's the lead developer of Verus. He's the lead developer. He's one of you know the greats out there and you know definitely on a level with satoshi and in my opinion and in my experience and so mike had the you know the starting knowledge and experience given that he was also lead architect of the windows 95 kernel that he understood you know computing plus application development plus ux plus ui you know, all of those things you need a lot of knowledge to you know, not be distracted. And what we saw with Satoshi was this fundamental innovation that's this giant leap forward that means that you don't need middlemen. That's a giant leap forward for humanity. That really is a big thing. And then we evolved from the UTXO blockchain, that innovation to say, what are the primitives you need? You need security, identity, peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces, and the ability for anybody without needing to know how to code to create a currency or a token or, you know, uh, a, a form of value that just stems from that namespace. So you want to create an album and you want to have, you know, many owners, you should be able to do that just as easy as you could create a website on Wix or on, you know, Shopify, a shop on Shopify. It needs to be that service. So, you know, it wasn't only about the technical solution. It was about a technical solution that abstracts away the complexity of the new the new paradigm and gives you know apis which is the way that developers want to interface these days to developers so that they can be as creative as they want to be without having to be protocol developers and without having to be copy paste uh, error replication machines which they are in the smart contract arena so we call this smart transactions versus smart contracts that's that's a, a fundamental difference when you have primitives that you can compose so when people talk about composability what you want to be able to say is you know my name is nicholas i own this bottle of quasac this bottle of quasac is you know it, it everything needs a name you know if you're going to speak in words and words create contracts and i say i promise I'm going to send you this bottle of Quasac, right? Everything is contracted in words. Now, in the same way, you need to be able to do that in digital space. So it, there needs to be a namespace that allows you to address everything and then say, you know, if this, then that. And it's far better to do that with a primitive-based suite of tools that everybody can rely upon as being secure and cryptographically decentralized and distributed. So Nicholas, you just kind of implied that you know Satoshi. You said in your opinion and in your experience, you use those two words, opinion and experience. So I guess for the audience, could you explain who Satoshi is and then... Um... <sighs> well, I don't want to range across this because it's such a you know uh, difficult subject, but I will say that you know there is a person that I believe is Satoshi. 
and I believe that he was based in London. And I think that you know the London Times article, Chancellor on Brink of Second Bailout, is good evidence of that fact. And it doesn't really matter, you know, who he is. He is a you know extremely intelligent mathematician and computer scientist, and he developed something amazing for the world. And we have to be extremely grateful that he did such a wonderful thing. And we have to understand that it's math, mathematics, and, and a, an innovation that can be learned from and evolved. And we learned from it, appreciated it, and have evolved it. Do I believe that Bitcoin is going to replace the dollar? No. Do I think it's a massive innovation that is going to change humanity? Yes. So a colleague of mine here in New York, actually an NYU colleague at Stern, has a philosophy that Satoshi is actually a New Yorker and lives right outside of Manhattan in the Westchester area. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, first of all, anything is possible except for the fact that, the, as I said, the, um, the article that was included in the Genesis block was from the London Times and only available in the UK, so he must have been in the UK. Also, the profiling of the times that um, Satoshi operated seemed to conform with um, GMT, and the timings would would be surprising if there was someone on um, EST out of New York. And all of the syntax, like um, Satoshi says, um, I don't mean to be a wet blanket. I've not heard many New Yorkers refer to themselves as being a wet blanket. It's a very British way of, uh, you know, turn of phrase, you know, and he talks of things being, you know, bloody difficult, which again would be strange for a New Yorker. But um, I, I am always uh, open to being wrong. Uh, but I did post on my Twitter feed an interesting document that went between myself and the person that I think is Satoshi, which is on one of my Twitter threads, which is called Bitcoin is a prototype. And I do believe that Bitcoin is a prototype. It is the beginning of an open internet that solves for the problems. And I believe that a mind as good as Satoshi's and his technical writing, which is, you know, a triumph, is extremely likely not to be an American, in my opinion, just from the way it's written and the way that, you know, the Bitcoin talk, uh, he talks. But, you know, anything is possible. And, and it doesn't really matter. The point is that this is an innovation for the ages and that Satoshi showed a great deal of restraint and a great deal of good sense. You know, he noted when Julian Assange wanted to take uh, contributions to WikiLeaks in Bitcoin that he did not think it was a good idea and he didn't want himself to be referred to as a shadowy, anonymous individual. He had, you know, great sensibility, also great knowledge of the markets. You know, he referenced the Hunt brothers you know, cornering the silver market. You know, I'd had specific conversations about the Hunt brothers and the silver market with this individual that I think it is as well. So, you know, there's many things. Plus, this person is also a, a Japanophile. So it made sense that he would choose a, a Japanese name. So, you know, for me, there were many indicators. So you, so you really know who Satoshi is? Whether I, I, I have a view as to who I think it is, but it's irrelevant. It's just an amazing achievement well, of for the someone fun who of is it, a for the fun of it, amazing gotta, mathematician. Gotta, for the fun no. of it, you got to <laughs> no, name the person. Never, never, <laughs> never, never. All right. Never. I us, think he's too provided, important. 
You've been super generous and patient today. You've given us a ton of knowledge and, and time. Um, something that I do with all of my guests before we end is I lead with the name of the show, Some Future Day, and ask you to end the sentence. So, you know, on your toes, Nicholas, in some future day, Verus will mean... Consilience, the unity of knowledge. Consilience means the unity of knowledge. So in some future day... The world that we're approaching is, as we said, information technology. The information space needs to be attached to its rightful owners in order to have value transfer and in order for each one of us to fulfill our life's potential. So in some future day, we will own our own life's potential and we will be able to move towards the unity of knowledge, which is known by this one word that was uh, employed very well by E.O. Wilson, and he used the word consilient. So in some future day, we will become consilient and we will unite as people and we will no longer need to have trust gaps that exist between us. We will be able to verify and then trust and our world will be a much fairer and uh, better uh, world to live in. So that would be my view. In some future day, we will be able to benefit from the unity of knowledge and use AI to free up our time to do the things that we love. Beautiful. I know your time is very important. So thank you so much for joining me today. For ongoing insights surrounding these important topics, you can join the conversation on my social media channels, including Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, at Mark Beckman. And to sign up for my newsletter on Substack, you can find me at markbeckman.substack.com. To make sure you don't miss a show, be sure to subscribe to Some Future Day across all major platforms worldwide, including YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Special thanks to New York University for producing Some Future Day and a big shout out to my producer extraordinaire, John Boomhofer, for being patient and always encouraging me to push through. Thanks a lot, John. Have a great day. <laughs>